that was my coping mechanism. And that was the thing that had me, you know, gave me the, for me, it was, that gave me the tools for, for some reason, that was the thing that kept me going. And I sound like a broken record now, but um, yeah, I don't know why now I know why, but at the time I didn't know why I couldn't find anything else, even though it was a maladaptive coping mechanism, but I didn't want to find anything else either because it worked. And the more I kept doing it and I would do it on a weekly basis and a daily basis. And it just got, I got more and more into it and I just like couldn't stop. And I didn't want to stop either, which is why I never talked about it because I didn't want anyone to make me stop. Um, And I truly did love it. It really was an addiction for me. And I would just be damned if anyone would (laughs) take it away from me. Hey guys, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today I'm here with Amanda Beausoleil, CEO of Self-Injury Recovery Anonymous. Amanda is from Katy, Texas and currently lives in Dallas. Before working in mental health, Amanda worked in corporate fashion and lived in New York for 10 years. Wow. Amanda currently runs a nonprofit peer support group for people recovering from self-injury called Self-Injury Recovery Anonymous where they have Zoom meetings three times a week with more on the way and members around the world. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? I'm good. I'm a little tired and also a little nervous. I always get nervous before interviews. I don't know why, but I always just get a little nervous. (laughs) I feel that. I'm the same way. And that's why I like pre-recorded. I hate live because I just get that anxiety. What if I say the wrong thing? Or what if I forget my story? What if I forget my name? I know. I know. I'm like, how do I forget my own story? But sometimes I'm just like, oh, wait, what, what is my story again? <laughs> right. Or how did I say it last time? Cause what if I say it a little differently? It's yeah. Terrifying. And like, also like remembering like the time I was like, how old was I again when that happened? <laughs> yes. So before we begin our conversation on self-injury, for those who don't know, can you explain a little bit more about what self-injury is? Yes, definitely. So I like using the definition from the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, which is a great resource to go to. Their website is ietriples.org, and they define non-suicidal self-injury as the deliberate self-inflicted damage of body tissue without suicidal intent and for purposes not socially or culturally sanctioned. So this definition has several important parts for um, specifically First, the harm that results from self-injury is an intentional or expected consequence of the behavior. So risky behaviors that could result in harm, such as not wearing a seatbelt while driving or accidental harm that may occur when playing extreme sports are typically excluded from this um, definition. Second, self-injury usually results in some sort of immediate physical injury, including cuts, bruises, scratches, or marks on the skin. Um, third, self-injury is separate from suicidal thoughts and, um, behaviors. Um, and finally, see, I get nervous. I'm like holding my breath and I'm like, breathe, Amanda. (laughs) 
And finally, behaviors that might cause physical damage but are acceptable in acceptable in our society or part of recognized culture, spiritual or religious ritual are considered or not considered self-injury. For this reason, body modification, body piercing, or tattooing are not usually considered forms of self-injury. So that's the definition I like to go with. Also, non-suicidal self-injury is a mouthful. So I just say self-injury. Thank you so much for sharing that with us because there are so many misconceptions on self-injury. People don't know what it is. A lot of times, like you said, people think it is a suicide attempt. It is not a suicide attempt. It is not only cutting. It is not only result in cuts on your arms. It is a lot broader than how the media has portrayed it. So a lot of people don't know. Right. And it can be burning. It can be skin picking. It can be scratching. It can be hair pulling, it can be ripping out your cuticles, it can be, there's so many, it's so complex and there are so many different varieties of self-injury that you can engage in and it's not just cutting, that's just exactly like what the media depicts, that's the most popular one they depict the most. Exactly. And you've been such an incredible advocate for normalizing the conversation on self-injury. And you host this IGTV series called Understanding Us, where you have shared your story and you've brought other people on to share theirs. But for those listening who have not heard your story, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience with self-injury? Yes. And it's also on YouTube as well, Understanding Us. Um, So because IGTV, I think it only lets you do 15 minutes, I think. Um, So sometimes it goes a little bit longer, our episodes on YouTube as well. But I started understanding us because I started telling my story and I wanted really to put a face to self-injury because it is so stigmatized and just having people realize like anybody can self-injure and it's not So it's just not stereotyped anymore Um, and starting to realize that like it can be anybody. And so I started with my own story and I started cutting. That was my form of self-injury when I was 10. So I was in elementary school and it actually didn't start with cutting. I started with scratching my face when I was in elementary. And then when I realized that um, the pain that I was feeling like a relief of like a wash of relief came over me and it like prevented me from crying because I always saw crying as like a form of weakness and I didn't want to be weak um I realized I kind of found like a loophole to emotions and then when I realized I was like okay well I don't want to have scratches all over my face like how can I keep doing this but hide it and you know hiding is such a huge part of self-injury so that's when I moved to cutting so I started cutting and I started when I was about 10, 11, and then I didn't stop until I was about 24. So well out of college and um, yeah, and I didn't look like the typical stereotyped, you know, um, self-injurer um, or person that engages in self-injury and I was a cheerleader. I was a competitive in school cheerleader. I was captain of the cheer squad. I was someone that looked like that, had it all together, but self-injury was a form of control for me and perfectionism. And for me, I thought it was a way of not being a burden to anybody. And I didn't pick it up from anybody. I didn't know about it. 
at the time. I didn't know about it. Um, as I got older, I, there are people on my cheer squad that I realized engaged in self-injury as well, but we never spoke about it. Like I, they probably saw my cuts too, but like none of us ever dared to talk about it because we probably were scared that like one of us would, I don't, I don't know why we probably, you know, it's such an isolated behavior and such addictive behavior that you just don't want to talk about it with other people and you don't know how to talk about it either at the time I mean now I'm so used to talking about it but at the time you don't even know what to say um and you're so scared if you do talk about it that it's going to be taken away from you at least I was um that's why I never wanted to bring it up because I was in therapy I started going to therapy when I was 13 and I loved therapy but I never talked about my cutting because I didn't want it taken away from me because that was the thing that kept me going um I had three suicide attempts when I was younger one when I was 13 one when I was 15 or 16 and then another one in college and None of it was, I, it was, I had three overdoses. So cutting for me was always the thing that kept me alive. Um, like I said, it's non-suicidal self-injury. So that was the thing that kept me alive. It kept me going. That was how I like put a smile on my face every day because that was like my breath of fresh air in a way. Um, that was my coping mechanism. And that was the thing that had me, you know, gave me the, for me, it was, that gave me the tools for, for some reason, that was the thing that kept me going. And I sound like a broken record now, but, um, yeah, I don't know why now I know why, but at the time I didn't know why I couldn't find anything else, even though it was a maladaptive coping mechanism, but I didn't want to find anything else either because it worked. And the more I kept doing it and I would do it on a weekly basis and a daily basis. And it just got, I got more and more into it and I just like couldn't stop. And I didn't want to stop either, which is why I never talked about it because I didn't want anyone to make me stop. Um, and I truly did love it. It really was an addiction for me. And I would just be damned if anyone would <laughs> take it away from me. Um, and it was the thing that, made me want to stay alive in a weird way at the time. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with vulnerability, because when we talk about self-injury, we tend to kind of go around it and kind of maybe dip our toes in the conversation, but we don't jump in. We don't explain how it's so addictive, how it is a sense of control, how you didn't look like someone who would engage in self-injury. I don't know what the look is that everyone says you don't look like that look, but you presented as someone who had it all together. So to be kind of dealing with this on your own in secret and maybe even knowing that other girls were too and they knew you were and yet still didn't have that conversation is so powerful into what it's like to be someone who does engage in self-injury. And when we first spoke, we talked about this, how I was the same way, that feeling of control and being a competitive cheerleader and having to hide it so it wouldn't show with your uniform. Yeah. And people don't realize there's this misconception that it's all for attention and someone who self-injures is looking for attention, but people don't realize how hard it is to go, how do I hide it now? And like you said, with the scratches on your face, you didn't want the scratches on your face anymore. 
I think that is one of the most powerful points of talking about self-injury is the fact that it's not for attention. It's genuinely this addictive sense of control that keeps you alive, that at least I'm still trying, at least I'm still going. Exactly. And, you know, you go through great lengths to hide it so you can keep going and you can keep that. And it's a it's an odd form of intimacy as well, um, because it is a very isolating behavior. And it's something that, you know, you're going to keep to yourself and that you're going to hide and you're going to go to great lengths to hide it and to make sure that it's only for yourself. Um, and when people see it, you're going to come up with some type of excuse. And I don't know why I could never come up with good lies either. I would, I would always say to myself, like, how have I not come up with a good lie yet? I would always come up with the worst lies for it. And I was just like, I've been at this for years and I've not come up with a good lie yet. I always would just like be like a deer in headlights when people would stop me or like grab my arm or like touch my scars or my wounds or something um because it always catch me off guard um and that's something I would always kind of laugh to myself about like in a weird way I'd just be like how did I not come up with a good lie about this yet and I'd always talk to like now in recovery talk to other people that engaged in self-injury they'd be like I cannot come up with good lies about this I was like I know it was the one thing I just could not do um I just had I wasn't honest about it I just like would just be like uh I don't know and just kind of run away from it (laughs) yeah it's hard because you don't expect anyone to see it and to ask you because the whole point is you're hiding it you're doing it alone in private and then when someone sees it you don't know what to say because that moment was never going to happen in your head right yeah it was never going to happen even though it's happened over and over again but you still think okay well that's going to be the last time even though you you know it's not going to be but somehow you lie to yourself and say it's going to be the last time because you think you're going to stop you hope you're going to stop even though you kind of know a part of you wants to stop even though a part of you doesn't want to stop and it's it's that tug of war with yourself you're like am I going to stop am I not going to stop I kind of want to stop but I kind of don't want to stop and it's that and it, that's where you feel like an addict because you you don't know which one's going to win that day. Exactly. And you mentioned you started self-injury when you were 10 years old and you didn't stop until you were 24. So how long did it take you to reach out to help? Did you reach out for the first time about the self-injury at 24 or did that happen before? So I reached out, I started going to peer support Um, when I was 22. So I had just graduated college, so 22. So it took me a few years in the program to fully recover because I had relapsed um, and then finally was able to fully recover. So at the time it was called Self-Mutilators Anonymous SMA and we just recently changed our name to Self-Injury Recovery Anonymous. Um, But it's still the same peer support group peer support group, um, same structure and everything. We just simply changed our name to go with, um, be up to date with um, the medical field and um, what they call self-injury today, because it started, the peer support group started in 1986. So back then, um, the field called self-injury, self-mutilation, and now they call it self-injury. So we're just trying to keep up with the times now. Um, But I started going in 
2014, which is when I graduated college. And that was when I realized I needed help because I was like, wow, over a decade has passed. And I'm, this is the one thing I haven't kicked. I've gotten help with everything else with mental health and I've have a great support group and I have great doctors and I've gone on medication for my mental health issues. And I have a great support network. And, but yet cutting's the one thing I haven't kicked. Like, why haven't I kicked this? And like, God forbid, another 10 plus years go by and I, you know, have kids and have a husband and like, what if my kids walk in on me and I'm cutting myself and what if they pick that up and they think that's a way to deal with your emotions? Like that's something I would never be able to forgive myself for. And that was really just like having that flash forward of thinking and that scared me. And that's something I would never be able to forgive myself for. And so that thought just kind of, scared me into getting help and I didn't even know what to type into the computer I was like what do I even call this I I didn't even know what to look up and then I was just like okay maybe I just type in self-harm or cut it I did cutting or like group it <laughs> and then that's when self-mutilators anonymous popped up and I saw that they had one group in New York luckily and it was like a few blocks away from where I worked and so I wasn't sure if I was going to go to the meeting I was like struggling all day I was like oh, should I go should I not go and then I finally decided to go and it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, hands down. Um, and I went and I was like, gosh, what is this meeting going to be? How are these people going to be? Like, I was stereotyping like my own people, so to speak. And like the people that are so much like me and understand my struggle. And I, yeah, totally stereotyped them. And when I walked in, they're just like the kindest, nicest, most understanding people, people of all different ages from teenagers to senior citizens, like the age group gap was just so vast. And it was just, I remember thinking how brilliant everybody was, like literally just so brilliant. I was like, wow, everyone here is so smart. And like just listening to everybody's shares. And I was just like, wow, everyone, I just was just blown away. And I remember thinking like, are they reading my minds? my mind because when everyone shared I just felt like they understood everything I was going through and everything I've ever thought and like every episode of like cutting I've ever had they understood whether they were a cutter or burner or scratcher picker it didn't matter like they've understood that feeling and I was like I've never been in a room like this before in my life and it totally just changed the game for me and I remember leaving that room and I remember it was a winter, really cold New York day, and it was snowing. And I called my family on the conference call. I called my dad, my mom, my sister and brother-in-law. I had them all on the conference call and told them where I just went. Because I didn't tell anyone where I went just in case I backed out. So I didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> and um, I told them that I just went to the support group for self-injury. And I just started crying. And I was bawling on the phone and I just felt this weight just leave my shoulders and that was the first time in my life I felt relief and it was the first time in my life I realized I was going to be okay and I'm getting checked up I realized that I didn't realize how much self-injury had weighed me down for so long until that moment when I felt it leave and 
it was because of that group and it was because of peer support and it was because of all those people in the room just being able to share their story and being so honest and having so much compassion and just being kind um, and being able to listen to their struggles and being able to share my story. Um, and I've been going ever since. And now I've been clean for five years. Congratulations on five years. That mm-hmm. is amazing. The strength you showed that day that you started Googling and then the strength you showed the day you showed up for the first time and you listened and then you spoke over and over again, so much strength. And you mentioned so many amazing points. One I really want to touch on is you talked about how in 2014, it was the first time you went and it took two years before you got to the point without any more relapses. People don't realize that just because you relapse doesn't mean you can't recover. You can't get there. Yeah. Relapsing so is part of it. Exactly. It's part of recovery. And then- yeah. You also talked about how listening to people, you felt understood. I don't think anyone understands the power of when you open up and someone else hears you. And for the first time, they finally feel like they aren't alone. Yeah, people don't realize, like I always, in our literature says like, even if you don't want to share, that's okay. Be an active listener. Listening is so powerful and you never know what you're going to gain from just listening in the group. I gained so much from just listening. Even I don't always share in group. Some days I just don't feel like sharing or I don't feel like I have anything to share and that's okay. Like I never know what I'm going to pick up from just listening to everybody shares that day. So there's so much power in just listening. Exactly. So how many times going to the meetings did it take for you to finally open up and share your story? Well, I, so I shared my first time um, because James, the founder of uh, SMA, now Sierra, was there and he's pretty good at um, getting you to share your first time. He doesn't really go to meetings that much these days. He's 72. He's now retired from his um, full-time job. He was an engineer. Um, so now he's just enjoying his life with his retired life with his wife. Um, but he still attends meetings sometimes, but doesn't come as often. He carried it for 35 years. So I think he definitely deserves a break. Um, but uh, he's pretty good at getting you to share your first time. And I think it's good to just rip the bandaid off, honestly, else it's just going to like fester. Um, so yeah, he got me to share my first time. So I was pretty lucky that he I had him there like in my corner that he was just like, just, just do it. (laughs) That is amazing to have someone there who makes you feel comfortable enough to open up and makes you want to open up. But I'm really interested. What inspired you to go from sharing in support group to sharing publicly and having these conversations with other people? So it was really when I started volunteering and um, volunteering and just responding to our emails. So our email had a huge backlog, like thousands and thousands of emails of backlog. And it was from people around the world. It was from people that just needed help. 
but also doctors and universities, um, therapists, and just kind of anyone and everyone that you could imagine because there is really no one like us around. And especially for the amount of time we've been around. And so I was just reading them and I was just like shocked, really. And also prison, people from prison emailing us as well. And I was just shocked. And I was telling James, I was just like, there needs to be more of us. Like there needs to be more people like hosting meetings. There needs to be more meetings, but there's just not enough of us. And there needs, we need to, how do we grow this? How do we make this a bigger, how do we grow our foundation? And I was, so that's how I kind of got inspired too. And so it took a, it took a while. I was still working in fashion and just responding to emails and just volunteering. And, and in my capacity, I'm still volunteering. I still work part-time. Um, I have a part-time job and then everything I do for Sierra is still volunteer based. Um, and hopefully, you know, one day we can get funding and this can be a full-time thing. Um, but luckily now, you know, we have our 501c3 status and we've made leaps and bounds and hopefully we can continue to make even more leaps and bounds. Um, but now, you know, we went from one meeting a week to three meetings a week and we have more volunteers. But it really started with me just reading emails. And then it went to me telling James, OK, now I want to have a bigger role in this and, you know, let's get our nonprofit status. All right. Now let's have a, a, a um, schedule so volunteers can, you know, put in what day they want to volunteer. So now when people want to host meetings, they can put their name in a, a calendar that we have now so now we have some more things in place where now we have more volunteers which is great and now we have more people hosting meetings and more people saying hey I want to create a meeting which is amazing we're about to have our fourth meeting um, starting I think in two weeks actually Um, and now we have more international meetings which is great which is more time friendly for our international members so I really just started with me just reading what people wanted from us and what people needed from us. And then that got me interested in just telling my story publicly um, because so people know that they're not alone. And I got so used to telling it in group. So it didn't, it wasn't that big of a leap for me because I was so used to telling it every week. Wow. You are amazing. First of all, the passion you have, you can tell by the way you talk about it. And to do it on a volunteer basis, a lot of people won't do it. If they don't get something financially out of it, a lot of people won't do it. So for you to be someone who just genuinely wants to help, who saw how many people were struggling and recognized how important this need is and how much you want to be a part of growing this support group that actually gives people a chance to be seen and feel seen and feel understood so that they can begin recovery from a place of community instead of feeling isolated. And you're offering that to them. And that's amazing. Like, I hope you genuinely know you are and the work you're doing is amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. (laughs) 
So let's play a game because there are so many myths and misconceptions about self-injury. So it's going to be called myth or fact. And I'm going to share a statement about self-injury that I hear all the time. And I would like you to call it a myth or a fact and explain why. Okay. All right. So we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but when someone engages in self-injury, they are attempting suicide. That is a myth. The clinical term is non-suicidal self-injury. So it is a maladaptive coping mechanism. So usually when you're dealing with intense negative emotions, um, that is why someone is engaging in self-injury, but it is non-suicidal self-injury. So you are not attempting suicide. Cutting is the only form of self-injury. That is a myth. There are many forms of self-injury. Cutting is just one of the forms of self-injury. Not everyone who self-injures does it repeatedly. Self-injury can be done once, occasionally, or repeatedly. Everyone is different. So some people have engaged just once. Other people, it is periodically it ebbs and flows some people it is a daily thing other people it's a monthly thing some people they it may like the mean age is around 13 and then they may do it for a few months and then it may peak again around 20 and come back around 20 years old and then it may stop again so like I say it may ebb and flow for some people so everybody's really different only teenage girls engage in self-injury That is a myth. I love telling the origin story of our peer support group because it was started by two middle-aged men. Um, James, who I spoke about, our founder, is one of them. And then Shelly, who um, passed away before I started attending um, peer support group. Um, But they were both in their 40s in 1986 when they started the group. Wow. That is incredible because that is one of the biggest misconceptions and myths is the age and the demographic people only self-injure for attention that is not true most people do not do it for attention but I say if you are doing it for attention then we should give them the attention because if you are going to that grade of length then let's give them the attention because you shouldn't be self-injuring for any reason at all yes Self-injury is often about coping with emotional pain rather than inflicting physical pain. Yes, it's usually for or dealing with negative, intense negative emotions. Even though for me, I know personally, and I've heard other people say, like, when you're in the thralls of it, like when you're deep in self-injury, like I know for me personally, when I was deep in it, I would be cutting for any reason at all, whether it was negative or positive when I was like years and years into self-injury. But when you start off, it is because you're dealing with intense negative emotions. Thank you so much for clarifying that because I think a lot of people don't understand when they hear someone else is struggling with self-injury about why they may be doing it. They don't understand why someone would want to hurt themselves, but it's not necessarily about causing pain to yourself. It's about coping with those intense emotions. I know for me, it was about calming down, bringing myself to a sense of calm. Cause when I got worked up, I was hyperventilating. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. I was just on the floor screaming. And it was the only way to kind of numb myself. Right. And like everybody gravitates towards it for different reasons, whether it's control, perfectionism, calming down. So I always say like, don't assume why somebody engages in self-injury because there's so many reasons why we 
yes, we're going towards to for um, to you know in, so we can cope with our emotions, but the motivation it can be so many different reasons for the motivation, even though it is to cope with our emotion. Self-injury is a phase that everyone grows out of naturally. No, because I know plenty of people that have not grown out of it. I did not grow out of it naturally. I needed help. Some people do grow out of it. um, And for some people, it is a phase, but for many, it is not a phase. And lastly, recovery from self-injury is possible. It is very possible. Obviously, I am a living (laughs) testament that it is very possible. You have been so amazing so far and debunking these myths is huge. And you're playing a huge role in normalizing the conversation on self-injury with your IGTV and YouTube series, with having these conversations, with engaging in the support groups by showing up constantly, you are helping to normalize the conversation. So now for other people who have never engaged in a conversation about it and Maybe they've seen a loved one who is struggling with self-injury and they don't know what to say. What are some ways an outsider can learn how to provide that support that someone who is struggling needs? I think just always go into it with compassion. Don't assume. And also don't you don't ever, you know, make it seem like that's their identity you know, never refer to them as a cutter or a burner. You know, I always say like they may engage in self-injury, but they are not their behavior. You know, we are many things. And also when you are in it, it may feel like your identity. I know it felt like my identity when I was in it. And I truly believed it was my identity. If you were to ask me back then, like, what is one thing about me? I probably wouldn't have admitted it, but in my head, I would have said, you know, I'm a cutter because I would have believed that even though it wasn't true, but I believed that. So I think it's really important not to let, not to lead with that or believe that or let that person believe that that is their identity because it's not true. And not to assume also um, that they are engaging in self-injury, you know, let them tell their own story um, I think is really important. And also don't ask to see their wounds or scars because it's very invasive and do not touch their wounds or scars because that's also very invasive. So I think the biggest thing is it's okay not to have the answers and it's okay if you don't have advice for them. I think the biggest thing is just to be a lending ear and just to say that you're there to be supportive and to be compassionate. I think that's the biggest thing. Yes, I completely agree. Listening let them feel heard let them have a space if they want to talk about it or if they don't want to talk about it, don't force them and push it on them. When they're ready, they will talk about it. And if you genuinely don't know what to say and you are not comfortable being there and providing that support, reach out to someone who can be. Don't put yourself in a situation that you're not ready for either because it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. And I'd say another thing is don't give them ultimatums. Don't say like, you know, if you don't stop doing this, then you can't go to the game tonight or you can't, you know, get your driver's license or you can't do this Um, because that's not fair. They're already punishing themselves. So punishing them more is not going to help. Exactly. And then it's just adding more 
conflict into it. It is not something easy to deal with. Don't assume that you can just help someone suddenly snap out of it. Exactly. It's a long road and it's going to take time. So just let them know that you're going to be with them on their journey on the long road and you know it's going to take time. And just know, let them know that you're going to be with them by their side and that they're not alone because they already feel very alone. And it's a very isolating behavior. So let them know that, that they have somebody in their corner on their team. Exactly. And now on the other side of that, what advice could you offer someone who is engaging in self-injury and they want to reach out, but they don't know where to start, start, whether it's to a loved one, a peer support group, opening up on social media, what advice could you have for them? I would say they could go to our, our website, thesira.org. So the S-I-R-A.org. And if they go to our homepage, it has our meeting, our Zoom meeting ID. And then they can email us for the passcode. I think peer support group is great personally, because then you're in a room with people that get you. You don't have to explain anything. Um, you are amongst your own and you don't have to talk if you don't want to either. You can just listen and see if it's for you. So I think that's always a great place to start. Um, I think therapy is always great as well. Um, and then maybe confiding in a friend or your parents, if you're comfortable, is great as well. And if you just want to say, hey, this is what I'm doing, but I'm safe, I'm getting help, or I want to get help. Um, and maybe that's why going to a peer support group first is great, or going to a therapist, or if you're already in therapy and telling your therapist first, and then maybe telling your loved one. So then you can say, I am seeking help, or I have already seeked help. So they know that you're safe, because really all your loved ones want to know and want to help you with is to, and want to make sure is that you're safe and that you're healthy and that you have a support team around you and they want to be part of that support team. Exactly. And if you're listening and you can't get to a support group, you can't get to therapy, you don't know where to go, there are crisis lines, please write this down, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, crisis text line, text 741-741. There are so many different options out there. And whether it's Syra or one of the crisis resources or a therapist or a loved one, they will be there for you. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. You are amazing. There's no other word. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm in awe of you as well. So I loved being on today and thank you so much for having this conversation with me.